Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to stir your nerves, to intrigue you, to fill your mind with critical thinking and adventure. Today we will be discussing the need for valuing good and bad, and also we'll discuss some fun and maybe terrible stories. Alright, so the first thing we're going to talk about is really we're going to discuss the situation going on with Hollywood in our culture right now because it's one of these things, and to, to steal Amanda's illustration, it's like there's a, a bug that we when it's seen and they've peeled away the wallpaper a little bit to find out that the pretty much the whole wall is, is rotten and littered with bugs and it's a, a very vicious infestation and the, the web of corruption and scandals goes very deep very quickly and it's a, just a really terrible situation. So in light of the current Hollywood scandals, one of the things that I think is important for us to talk about is we need tools in our culture for, for having virtue. We need to be able to evaluate which things are good, which things are bad, and be able to say, this is bad behavior. These things are good behavior. One of the things that I think is really obvious now, I think many people suspected it, but the, the Hollywood characters who a lot of times they get on TV, they want to act like they're these moral figures. You know, they're not. The facade is gone. I think pretty much everyone knew that these were rather some corrupt and scandalous picture people, but now that facade is gone, that the picture has been taken down and people can see the faces for what they really are. We can see the characters, the mask is no longer there. And you know, it's really sad, they're not even as good of role models as the characters they play. And I mean, it's debatable whether or not the people who are in Hollywood films are even good role models for, for people in life. They're obviously largely fantasy characters that are not so much connected to the to the reality of the world around us, even though there's elements of it there. So we just need to, to move in a better direction with all of this. When we talk about returning to virtue, I think sometimes when we hear that word virtue, we think of something very static and almost suffocating, this kind of stiff structure that keeps us from having fun or doing things we want to do. And, we, and that's really not what we're talking about. Or that somehow, uh, like, since we are specifically talking about Hollywood, like, if Hollywood just does, like, a Christian movie, then all of a sudden virtue has returned to the industry. And that, again, that's not quite what we're talking about. Virtue is really this understanding of what is good, what is life-giving versus what is bad, what is going to take life or destroy or hamper life. And so we need to return to those critical thinking skills. They're going to be able to enable us to evaluate and be able to make the decisions and the priorities that are going to be for life and life to the fullest. And to build off that language a little bit, the idea of blessing is the very idea of giving life. You know, we look at the church, we look at the really the first call where God says, I'm going to separate people. They're going to be the, my people. I'm going to separate Abraham and Sarah, and they're going to be people who go and do the work that I'm calling to be. They're going to be set apart for, for fulfilling my, my will here on earth. And he says, you know, I will bless you. You go out and bless others. The whole earth is going to be blessed in this. The calling of the people of God originates out of this idea of exactly what you said, giving, giving life. And so many people in our world have been taught, you know, just because somebody else is doing something different for me, who am I to judge? Who, who am I to, to judge the other things going on in the world around me? And they kind of had this idea that morality is relative. But, you know, blessing is not really relative. If it's giving life, it's giving life. You know, if it's taking life, it's taking life. That's not something which is relative to specific people. And another thing we have to, virtue and blessing are not abstract or uh, uniquely spiritual um, elements, right? This is practical. This is everyday living life. Mm. This is something we're going to face from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. Um, and so th 
when we see people who are without virtue, it can be very obvious and very plain. And, and those with virtue, then, because we can tell the actions of, of some of the Hollywood people who have now come to light are obviously life taking. And right, right. so we can see, and, and regardless, I think, of your um, philosophy of life, we can look at that and very obviously say, yeah, that's not good. Um, but we have to continue that skill throughout our daily lives and not just kind of the big showy pieces that come out on our televisions, right. but in, in everything to be able to critically and practically decide what's going to be good and what's going to be bad. And yeah, I like how you said we have to be able to critically do this. And so many people in our world want to take that and say it means to criticize or to condemn. But when we do things critically, what we mean is critical thinking. Critical thinking is not condemnation. And again, being the, the sort of pastor that I am, being the, the minister, if we go back to the Greek language, we actually find two words that are often translated in English as judge or judging and judgment. It's the idea of krino and kriso. One of them is where we get the English word crisis. That's the word that means condemnation. But there's also the Greek term krino, which means to just consider something, to think about it. You know, the, the judgment, the sort of noun verge of, version of that is to go out and actually, you know, administer justice. But the idea of, of just considering, thinking about something, that is crino, and that is a, a type of judgment to, and type of judging when we say we're going to evaluate the world around us. You know, if it's in the middle of winter and I wake up and I go outside and it's, it's wet and it's cold, I'm going to judge the situation and say I need to put on the proper clothes from this. It's not anything to do with condemnation. Again, it's a different word. It's a different concept. And we, we really need to be able to separate out the difference between the two. We really need to have tools for evaluating and saying that's just a, a rational human being who wants to give life to the world, these things are bad, these things are, are much better. I think by understanding some, this language helps give us the opportunities to really look and to not feel um, like we're doing something bad when we judge, because we're not. And, and I think all people judge and not condemn. Let's you know continue to make sure our language is clear. Um, yeah. But, you know, like you said, you judge when you go outside what kind of clothes are appropriate for the weather. You judge any time you drive your car or, you know, you make decisions. And so by allowing ourselves to understand this language and then also the truth of the matters, we are freed up to do what needs to be done and to decide what is good and bad. And at some points, I think there are things that are so evil and cause such suffering that we can condemn them. But that's taking it to kind of, that's going on further. But Critical thinking in itself is not condemnation. It is just evaluating the situation so we can decide how do we need to react and what we need to do with it. Lampton Worm. Alright, so we're going to be talking about dragons in our next segment today. So this is something which is really interesting because dragons are really found in ancient cultures and modern cultures all around the world. You can probably even go to a gas station and find something with a dragon on it. You can find some really interesting 
statues, really interesting pieces of art that people have put a lot of time and energy into. And you can find some really fascinating tales, really fascinating pieces of fiction, really good myths, and even virtue-oriented stories that we have throughout history that all feature dragons. But the thing that's so bizarre about them is, as opposed to many other creatures and animals in the world, dragons aren't necessarily real, and especially not real in the sort of pop culture version where it's this idea of either a long snake-like creature without legs or one that has two legs and has wings or maybe one that has four legs and wings. There's a few different variations on what a dragon looks like. But unmistakably, there's something found all around the world. Well, we're going to hear a an old story called the Lambton Worm and figure out what in the world the, the term worm has to do with dragons and how all of these things relate to one another. In Old English... Worm did not refer to just earthworms. It also referred to serpents and snakes and dragons. It was spelled either W-U-R-M or W-Y-R-M. And uh, so here we've got the introduction to the, the story of the Lambton worm. The youthful John Lambton decides to go fishing instead of going to church. But while on his way was worm no good can come from skipping church. Lambton paid this no mind and headed down the river anyway. Lambton doesn't catch anything until he pulls out a snake-like creature with nine holes in each side of its head, saying he had caught the devil. Utterly disgusted, he throws the creature into a nearby well. John Lambton soon becomes an adult and joins the Crusades for salvation from his rebellious past. During this time, the worm grew to be gigantic and terrorizes the land. It would devour cattle and at times people, men, women, and children if it could. It eventually makes its way to the Lambton Manor, where John's father would sate the worm's appetite with 20 gallons of milk in a trough every day. It was so huge that after it had its fill, the worm would rest and coil itself around the base of a hill. Many people came to face a serpent, villagers and knights, but the creature had the ability to reattach seven limbs with little to no permanent damage. Anyone near enough to the worm might find themselves coiled around and crushed to death. Seven years after John leaves the Crusades, John returns home to see his stomping grounds and ruins. He seeks to destroy the worm and pays a visit to a nearby witch. She tells him to have a black, the blacksmith put spikes on his armor and fight the worm when it is near the river. However, this advice would require him to kill the first thing he sees after the battle. Else he and his line be cursed never to die a peaceful death in bed for nine generations. Lambton sees a loophole in this and arranges for a hunting dog to be sent after him at his bugle signal. And finally finds the opportunity to fight the worm in a river and in which the same river where, where he caught the worm. Here his armor protects him from the worm's most dangerous weapon, the ability to squeeze the life out of him. Because the monster cannot do that without penetrating its own skin, the river proved to sweep away the parts of the monster Lambton does sever, leaving the worm unable to attach any body parts. Eventually Lambton wins the day, but his father forgets about the curse and runs to congratulate his son. Lambton and his line pay the price for this for nine generations because he could not bring himself to, bring, to kill his own father. Later on, John Lambton's son, grandson, and 
great-grandson would all die in various wars. And here we have a picture of what was probably the monster's origin. These lamprey can now be found in England again and were once a medieval delicacy. As you can see, it does bear a resemblance to this, the description in the story. It has the nine holes in its head and is serpent-like. And here, you can see what made it so devilish and detestable. It really could be devil-like. Yeah, they're a really gross-looking creature, the, the lampreys are. But as we go back to the story, again, we look at this, we hear the language of worm, but really this is the idea of a dragon. Except in the story, the dragon is more serpent-like. It's not one that, that flies around and, and breathes fire or whatnot. But it's the idea of the worm and the dragon being sort of unified. If we go back, we can find there's a root for all of this. The word vermin comes from the same root. So, so if you hear the words wyvern, which is another word for dragon or verm, vermin, worm, all of these have the same roots. They, they are all are connected with the idea of what we now call a dragon in, in common English. And from that, we have the word dragon, which comes from the Latin word Draco. And the name Drake is also obviously a word for, for a dragon. Another kind of interesting fact with the, the names and the language of this is Dracula, if you've ever made that connection and wondered. Um, and he is the kind of the inspiration or the, the fictional vampire. And his name originates from the fact that he was from the house of, I'm going to try to pronounce this, uh, Draculesti. And so then, again, which was a term for dragon. Yeah, he's from the, the House of the Dragon or the Order of the Dragon. It's very interesting stuff because we hear so many, there's so many, it's bizarre how many names and words we have that are actually derivatives of the concept of a dragon. When you see how that fragments off, you have Verm, and then you have on the other side the, the idea of Drake. There's a whole lot of names, and I'm sure there's more than I'm even aware of when we were putting all this together that really have their origins in the concept of the dragon. So the question we may have when we come to this is, you know, why are so many cultures filled with legends of dragons if there's something which isn't real in the same way that other real-life monsters are? There's plenty of monsters out there that are pretty creepy. If one seeing the lamprey, unmistakably, that's a really creepy thing. I don't know anybody that goes out fishing that would want to pull that out of the water. Well, an interesting theory is that dragons may be more real than we give them credit for, just not real in the same way that other, other monsters are. There's a, a pretty good theory going around, and you, you get different people who have, who have come together with this theory that, that dragons are really the collection of all of our, our fears of, of apex predators. So you have in all of these fields, um, as they're looking at the dragons in our world, um, that there's a sophisticated theory that dragons are kind of this combination of all these different predators. So you can see kind of in the talion, talon, talons, there we go. The talons are like maybe a bird of prey. They breathe fire, which would obviously for, well, even nowadays, but definitely for ancient civilizations would mean under destruction. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're reminders of all these different creatures, snakes and other reptiles and predatory birds, that these things that would be like uh, means of death and destruction in their world. And it's really interesting. David Jones, he has a, a book out called An Instinct for Dragons, and he, which again, it's a, one has to pay for this book. We're not going to send people to something that you can't just go ahead and Google, but if one is looking for something that they're willing to pay for, David Jones' books, An Instinct for Dragons, is pretty good. But again, this is something that actually is quite logical. Whether you take the elements of something like 
predatory cats, predatory birds, you take something like snakes, other reptiles, you combine all this stuff, and you, you put them together, and really you are having sort of the, the raw form of a dragon. And you, again, other things which destroy civilizations, uh, fire, that's a, a pretty damaging thing. You put them all together, and you have sort of the ultimate apex predator of destruction and chaos. And even with the, the idea of them hoarding gold and, and hoarding and eating virgins and things like that, all of this is sort of the things which are valued in society. They're being consumed by this ultimate apex force of destruction. And it is something which is really interesting. And again, you go back to the ancient world, you see there are people see bones, they see evidence of things, fossils and stuff like that. You'd be like, well, that's that's a large monster there. And you just sort of put all of the instinctive feel, fears that we have together and you really get dragons. And it's something which is so interesting because you find this in people who study psychology, uh, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology. You see a lot of people from these different fields and even anthropology sort of coming together that says there may actually be a a reason it's an abstract reason why so many different cultures have come to have dragons be part of their their mythology because again if you just sort of take all of the the fears people have together you put them together you have a dragon Well, next we're going to be returning again to Ion by Plato. Last week we looked at this question where Socrates, he asked him, he says, you know, you're, you're beautiful. Why, why is it that the artist does what the artist does? And Ion says, the most laborious thing I do is interpretation. And he makes this case that the artist is connected to truth. And, and as the artist is connected to truth, they must interpret truth. There, there's this idea that beauty is the interpretation of truth. And so what we're going to look at today, again, returning to Plato's Ion, is the conversation between Socrates and Ion, and we're talking about the need for the tools to value what is good and bad. Yeah, it's easy for people to critique from one side. There are people who want to say, well, everything's bad. I don't like stuff. Everything's just absolutely negative. And it's easy to be in that place, but it's really hard for people to do healthy criticism and then for also to be sort of assertive in the things in the world that need to be treated that way. There are things which actually do need to be condemned and we need to say are bad, but there's also a need to be peaceful. There's an, a healthy balance that needs to be when we respond to the world around us to say these things we will be assertive with, these things we will be peaceful with. There's a, a huge need for that, and that's where we're going to be looking now as we return to, to Ion as we read through this story. And again, I'll be reading Socrates, and Dylan will be reading Ion. But what about matters in which they do not agree? For example, about divination, for which both Homer and Hesiod have something to say. Very true. Would you, or a good prophet, be a better interpreter of what these two poets say about divination? Not only when they agree, but also when they disagree. A prophet. And if you were a prophet, would you not be able to interpret them when they disagree as well as when they agree? Clearly. But how do you come to have the skill about Homer only, and not about Hesiod or the other poets? Does not Homer speak of the same themes which all other poets handle? Is not war his great argument, and does he, and does he not speak of human society, and of 
the intercourse of men, good and bad, skilled and unskilled, and of the goods conversing with one another and with mankind, and about what happens in the heaven and in the world below, and in the generations of gods and heroes, and are not these the themes of which Homer sings? Very true, Socrates. And do not the other poets sing of the same? Yes, Socrates, but not in the same way as Homer. What, in a worse way? Yes, in a far worse. And Homer in a better way? He is incomparably better. And yet, surely, my dear friend Ion, in a discussion about arithmetic where many people are speaking and one speaks better than the rest, there is somebody who can judge which of them is the good speaker. Yes. And he who judges of the good will be the same as he who judges of the bad speakers? The same. All right, so let's just take a, a few moments in and step back from this text for just a, a few moments and see what we're hearing. Obviously, there's the language in there about Homer. Homer's sort of a contemporary writer from that time. He was very popular at that point in time in the ancient world. But also, you can see just how important Homer was because he's still a name that people are familiar with today. But as we go back and we examine this, there's this understanding that if you can value good, speaking about arithmetic, you can also be the same person to evaluate that which is bad. In other words, there's a consistent theme that if you can look at someone who, like Ion, who is a rhapsode, who they take and perform poetry, some of them do it well, some of them do it bad. Some writers are good, some are bad. Not everything is equally good, not everything is equally bad. Not all interpretations are equally good, not all interpretations are equally bad. Ion is making the case that if one has the capacity to go out and be assertive and say, this is bad, then one should also have the ability to go out and say, this can also be good. And one of the other things that we see as we come to this is that he's really making the case that, that Homer's work is, is higher quality. And again, if you go back to what is going on in the text of Ion, there's this idea that is connected to truth. Homer, again, he's a contemporary writer of the day. We can see elements of that going on. But this is something which is really just important for us to see the conversation that's going on there with Ion. It's something which is so meaningful. They were hashing out this argument that, that people should be able to value both good and bad in the ancient world. And it's an argument that we still need to have today. We still need to understand, again, in the context of the things going on in Hollywood, what happens when you remove the tools for valuing good and bad, you know, chaos just ensues. Mm -hmm. So again, we have to make, as we're hearing Ion and um, Socrates' conversation, um, they're kind of arguing over storyteller, but it really is this indication of this need to be able to critically um, look at something and discuss it and then be able to um, decipher its value. Yeah, it really does boil down to we need to be able to assess the value of stuff so that something productive can happen. We need to be able to get closer to truth, and we can only do that if we have the tools for, for really valuing things that are good and bad, because not everything is equally close to truth. That's one of the huge themes that we find in Plato's text, Ion, is the, the rhapsode Ion, who is the artist, he is saying that not all art is equally close to truth. We must value the things which are closer to truth. This is how we do well in society. This is how we make society better. This is how we cleanse ourselves of the things which are, are terrible and things which are evil. We have to be able to value which is closer to truth, which is closer to blessing, which is closer to meaning in the world. And when we have those tools, that's how we make the world a better place. In the past, we've been defining beauty as the interpretation of truth. How does that relate to Homer? Well, again, Homer is, is a contemporary writer of the day. It's easy to, to read this and hear the language of Homer and sort of miss the, the message that is there. 
And then this is one of the cases where we really do want to abstract for a moment to hear the heart of what Ion is saying. And he really is saying Ion is making the case that Homer is closer to some truth out there, depending on what he's writing. Of course, Homer has a lot of different works, which he would have done. But he's saying there's something about the reality of, of human nature. There's something about the reality of the world around us that Homer is able to portray at a much higher quality than other people who are also poets, artists, writers, whatever they may be. Not everybody is able to do that equally. And that's not to say that it has something to do with the, the qualities of the person so much as it does truth. The fixation that really we see happening there with Ion is how close we can get to truth. And this is really what Plato is making the argument for. We need to have tools which can help move us towards truth, not tools which can help hide truth, which can help confuse people about what truth is. Alright, so the next thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about Job. We're going to take a, a look. Job is this cryptic book, so we're not going to read so much out of Job 34. But if anyone does want to, to go and research some scripture, Job 34 is where I send you to look. Really, verses 1 through 4. And so to give us a little context for our conversation, Job is a book from our scripture. It's an ancient text. Um, and often... We kind of even know it in pop culture. We, we hear it just when we describe someone who, who has faced insurmountable amounts of suffering. And often we associate Job with um, random suffering. and Or that kind of God is up there arbitrarily punishing people, um, giving them suffering for the sake of it. Which is very contrary uh, to the book of Job if you really read it and also to the character of God. But anyways, it does, as we're reading the book of Job, it gives us a question. Can righteousness be real? Um, and can people really be good? So can there be a movement towards right order? And as we read the, the text, um, we see that it is structured very much like a trial. Yeah, and just to really realize this is structured like a trial, even the one who we normally have translated as Satan, he is the accuser. You have the accuser who comes in and makes this initial claim. He says, Job is not really righteous. He only is righteous for the utility of it. In other words, he says... Job is only good because you give him good things. He, he will stop being good if you do not have him good things as a reward or as a present or for, his, for his works. The works themselves are not because Job is a good person, but instead because Job only wants the reward. That's, that's the logic that is structured, and you must read the entire book of Job in that original argument. Because so many people look at this and be like, well, God initiated the suffering here. But that is not the case. The, the accuser is the one who comes in and says, I'm going to, to agitate the situation. I'm going to prove to you, again, it's a trial-like setup. And he says, I'm going to provide you evidence that righteousness is not sincere. The only reason why Job is at all righteous is because you're giving him rewards. You remove the rewards. He will not be righteous anymore. So he's there to agitate. And the accuser is the one who initiates the suffering we see in this text sometimes it can be cryptic or it's a little bit confusing language but if we can see past the difficult poetry we see the argument being made that righteousness is actually a real thing that good can be real and as we come to this especially if we go to verse 34 or, or chapter 34 we see Elihu who's sort of the last friend to make his his thoughts known he's the last one to really enter the conversation Elihu comes in and he's really fed up with the three friends they've spent like the entire book 
talking about how, Job, you must be guilty. You've had some sort of latent sin. You've done something. Just confess us to us that you're, you're guilty. And Job kind of holds out and says, you know, I, I haven't really done anything. You get a really complicated conversation that goes on with all of them. But Elihu comes into the situation and says, look, you people were willing, without a hesitation, to know with 100% certainty that Job is guilty of something. You were willing to do that. And he says in, in really the first four verses of chapter 34, he says, no, now we're going to sit down and we're going to decide something which is good. You have chose with absolution that which is wrong. Now let us sit down and choose what is right. And this is really where the story starts to reveal what's going on because Elihu is the last voice which really comes into the text and it's before God comes in and we see that sort of resolution that happens at the very end. But Elihu really introduced the last arguments, and he's the last one who really gets the, the final statements in the trial. He comes in and says, look, we have the tools for valuing which is bad, but that means we also have tools for valuing that which is good. Righteousness actually is real. Elihu, he says, I'm not going to have any of it. You people were out to, to set up Job and say that he's guilty, but I'm not going to have any of it. If you can judge, jolty, judge Job to be guilty, then you can also judge that he is not. And so as we look at the story of Job and also the story that Plato um, writes for us, we see a common argument. People are able to value what is good and bad, although it does take discipline to be able to do that constructively. So not only to see that something is wrong, but see how can we make it right? Or something is right, how can we continue in that? And it takes discipline. It's easy to go out and want to be harsh, negative criticism of everything in the world. And it's also easy to be in an overwhelming pacifist who doesn't ever have the, the assertion to go out and deal with things in the world which are corrupt. We must be disciplined people who can say, these things are corrupt, we're going to go over there and sort that out. These things are healthy, we want to do things which, which take this which is healthy and spread it. We want to find the things that are out here and take those tools and apply them elsewhere. We must have tools for valuing that which is good and that which is bad. It's so important that we can return to virtue and return to tools which can help us differentiate between the two. All right, well, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to move away from Ion and move away from the book of Job, and we're going to go somewhere which is somewhere between terrible and fun. We're going to be looking at two stories now. We're going to be looking at the Seguin Lighthouse and a floating log. And as boring as that sounds, we're going to talk about a floating log today. I imagine people who are listening to this are like, why in the world did I tune in to, to hear people talk about a floating log? Well, let's start with the Seguin Lighthouse, and then you can be the, the one who judges whether or not these were, were worth your time or not. So the Seguin Lighthouse is off the coast of Maine. It was built in 1857. It's on a 64-acre island there. It's just a few miles off the coast. It's not too far from civilization, but at the same time, if you go back to the 1850s, you go back to the 1800s, being on an island off the coast of Maine, living there, trying to just run a lighthouse, is a pretty isolated place. But there's an interesting thing which has happened here, because this is a place that is known for, for paranormal activity. It's known for, for being haunted. But let's hear what this story is behind the, the Seguin Lighthouse. So we have the legend of the lighthouse is rooted in a murder that sounds like the perfect thriller. Before the lighthouse was automated, a man and his wife lived in the lighthouse to maintain its functioning. Though they were just a few miles away from the mainland, life in the mid-1800s was quite detached when one lives on an island. The wife was a piano player, and the horror begins when she decides to pick out a new piece of music to play. With great discipline, she dedicates her skills to mastering this single piece of music, 
and not to be distracted by variety. For months, she practices this single piece of music over and over and over again, mastering its melodies and its rhythms. Her husband suggested that maybe she should order a new piece of music and have it shipped over to them, but she rejects the idea. Instead, she prefers to carry on with the same piece and continues to play it over and over and over again for more months. Eventually, the husband becomes deranged from hearing the same music as it's unending is it as it is unendingly carried on. Infuriated by this music, he decides to take an axe to the piano. And when the wife sees this, she complains. And in that moment, he turns on her and kills his wife. Other legends also add on that he then, realizing what he has done, kills himself. So this is an interesting story. If you can just imagine the... I know last week we talked about the Rite of Spring which is also a very evil piece of music. We, I don't think anyone actually knows what the piece of music was she was playing. But essentially, I mean, that's it. She picks this music. She plays it over and over again. It's this unending nightmare of this music which is played. And eventually the man just goes insane. He goes down there and smashes the piano in. He kills his wife. And then he realizes what he's done. And again, the legends are a little bit different whether he kills himself or not. But that is where we get the root of the Seguin Lighthouse. And now this is something where it's a, a haunted island. It's kind of neat. You've been able to see the pictures there. There's legend go that if you go to the island, you can hear the sounds of piano playing. It's something which just sort of looms out there in the past. So that's just sort of a, a fun and interesting story for this time of year. I think it, as we come to be people and we, we have the tools in our belt that values good and bad, I think we can look at this story and say um, taking a, an axe to destroy a piano and your, your spouse, that is bad. <laughs> I think just if we look bit. at this story and we say, playing the same piece of music so long that it causes someone to take an axe to to kill you in the piano you're playing on this is this is also bad and and we might be so far to say that if you're detached from society on an island that that might also be bad too um i think we can look at that story i don't really see a lot of good in the story i don't know amanda may disagree with me I know. <laughs> is there some silver lining in that anywhere well at least you got the music to stop the music did stop <laughs> The music did start. See, this is the critical thinking in action. We we look at the story and we say, this is good, this is good, this is this is bad. It's all bad in that story, if we're being honest. <laughs> all right, so let's go along to a floating log. Now, this is a log that is actually has a name. If you ever have been driving next to a, a creek, a stream, or, or something where there's a stick floating, or you've gone over a river here in Tennessee and you see a, a log floating somewhere and think, I wonder if that has a name. Well, there actually is a, a log that's been floating out in the, the Crater Lake in Oregon that does have a name, and it is called the Old Man of the Lake. And this is interesting because initially when you hear the thing about a floating log, you're wondering if it could be interesting, and then also how in the world does a log have mystery and paranormal legend surrounding it? Yeah, so if you go towards Oregon in the middle of Crater Lake, again, this is in a, a caldera up high. The I believe the mountain is right at 7,000 feet high, and there's this, this lake that's up there, and it's Crater Lake. It come from a long time ago, a, a volcano had erupted and then collapsed, and now there's a crater up there that's filled with water. There is a, a lake within this water, and there is a log that floats around in it. And this log has a lot of mystery around it for a few different reasons. One, the log floats, instead of being vertical or just poking out of the water sort of on its side or whatnot, it floats completely upright. It pokes down in the water a good bit, and again, we have some photos where you can see all of this. But the log floats upright, and no matter what people do with it, it always turns back to being upright, which is very interesting because something about it causes it to be buoyant in such a perfect way that it stays upright. 
And again, from the time that it's been there, it hasn't really deteriorated much. And it's been there for quite a long time. And it's just a really, really interesting story about this lake. Because when you go there, the water is really clear. And you see this log floating around. And I know you're thinking, is this story going to get any better? Right now they're describing to me a log in water. Uh, trust me, it does get better. The legends around this are kind of fun. So you come to the lake, and it looks really shallow. And you can even see the log, and you're like, oh, it's just a tree that's been in sort of the shallow water. Its roots are down in the ground there. But the reality of it is the water is actually quite deep. And when we say quite deep, it's 1,100 feet deep at average. And at its maximum depth, it's, it's over 1,900 feet deep. So it's close to 2,000 feet deep. This is no shallow pool of water to be in. It's very, very deep. I think you've got some photos of the log that you can see here. You're probably still still wondering, why in the world is this log interesting? The log has been floating upright for more than a century, and it was, docu it was first documented by Joseph Diller. The old man of the lake, which is the name of uh, the log, is actually a hemlock tree stump. And although it is strange how it always floats upright, the mystery of the log seems to go deeper than the depth of the lake itself. There is a legend that the log actually controls the weather in the area. As legend goes, when the people disturb the log, the weather goes crazy. And as long as people let the log be, the weather will take a more constant course. All right, so here's where this gets interesting. There are a lot of people, whether you could call it an urban myth or whatnot, that believe that this log is what controls the weather in the region. It's a really interesting legend. It's a really interesting myth. People believe that if you go out and you disturb this log, the weather will go crazy. But if you let the log be, things will be stable. There's a really interesting time where people were going to take a submarine. They wanted to study what Crater Lake looked like. They wanted to go down to the depths of it. Because, again, 2,000 feet is pretty deep for a lake. That's, that's not your, your shallow kiddie pool you may have. And when they went there, they were like, well, we don't want this, this floating log to be a nuisance for us. So they decided to tie up the old man of the lake, and they, they tied it up, and the weather just went crazy, and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't put their submarine in the water. They couldn't go and do any of the, the research they were planning. And when they finally unleash the log, the weather calms down. And so that's just really another place where we, we see that story and that legend connected to, to something, where there are a lot of people who believe that if, if you disturb the old man of the lake, that the weather is just going to go crazy all over the place. So it's really interesting. I think we have to ask our, ourselves, you know, is weather stable enough for us to do this? What, what's the deal with this log? And so using our um, focus on critical thinking and evaluating what is good or bad, we can kind of look at this and say, so is this really a supernatural phenomenon or is weather just really that unstable? Yeah, I, I think I have a hard time putting faith that a, a log is that which controls the weather. And again, just the, the legends around it are, are quite interesting. People are, are so worried that if this log is disturbed that this, the, the world will fall apart and the weather will just go crazy. It's just a really bizarre thing. Though it is a bizarre log that it stays upright like that. People have just been perplexed by it. And they really didn't think that there was a lot of current movement there, but the log just moves around. It's, it's interesting. You can, if you get online, you can Google people have maps and records of how the log moves. They're, they're the conspiratists out there that think that, that the weather is connected with how this, this log is going to float around. So it's just a, a really interesting log out there. <laughs> Earlier we said we were going to hear some fun and terrible stories. So was this story supposed to be fun or terrible? Well, we'll let people use their, their critical thinking skills of valuing good and bad to decide, was the story of a, a floating log worth my time or not? I mean, it did. It does control the weather, so I mean, it, it does have <laughs> it that going on for it. Time. It could be worth your time. Maybe, maybe all of us who 
who don't give it credit. Maybe we're the, the ones on the wrong side of history. Maybe that's why Nashville's weather is so bad. Someone's disturbing a log in Percy Priest. It could be. It could be. Maybe we have a log like that in, in our own area. That's the true root cause of all the, the weather issues is somebody is disturbing a log somewhere. Just got to find it. So let's go ahead and wrap up our program today. Yeah, we've done some silly stuff today. Sure, we've done some some stories which don't have much value outside of entertainment or, or horror. But in all honesty, the idea of being able to value good and, and bad, being able to value blessing and evil, being able to separate things which are a curse out from those things which give life, these are something our society desperately needs to return to. We, we must have tools for valuing good and bad. If we go back to the very ancient book of Job, we can see this argument playing out whether or not righteousness is even real. The question of is good real as an authentic and sincere thing that people can be a part of? That's a huge question. And as we look at what's going on in Hollywood today, it's so easy to get mad about that story because the corruption, again, you peel back the wallpaper a little bit, there's bugs everywhere. It's not just one bug. They're, they're all bugs. And, and you really don't want to be somebody who, who resorts to scorched earth. But it's really hard to look at this situation and see where is the silver lining where is the ability to fix this because it gets so complicated so quickly and everything seems to be deadlocked except the sheer force of hedonism itself the drive to to fulfill one's own wants at the expense of others the the desire for unearned things and unearned pleasures is just such a, a horrible vicious cycle and that seems to be the only thing which moves in that situation but the only light i can give us is to say we must return as a culture to understanding the proper place of virtue in our world, to returning to have tools which say these things are good and these things are bad. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our program today. We're going to go ahead and wrap things up. If you've enjoyed the content, please subscribe. We're on a lot of different platforms now. You can get on YouTube and you can just do a search for Kingdom of the Logos and you'll find our brand new YouTube channel. It is one that we're needing to get more subscribers on. So if you really enjoy this, please search for us on YouTube under Kingdom of the Logos. You'll find a channel with that name. Please subscribe to it. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kingdom of the Logos. You can find us on SoundCloud and you can also find us on CastBox. If you do a search for Tools for Liberty on either of those or you can do a search for Kingdom of the Logos, you can search by the program name or the umbrella name for all the stuff we have going on. But with that, I hope you have a blessed day. I hope we've stirred your nerves a little bit. I hope we've intrigued you with a few things. And I hope we've helped you develop some critical thinking tools for valuing that which is good in life and for out and for being able to evaluate that which is bad and say we've got to root this stuff out. So with that, have a blessed day.